Hello, everybody. This is Noah and John, and we are from Urban Digs. And Johnny, we're going to be talking a little bit of Manhattan today, specifically the New York City office sector, going outside right. of our lane a little bit. Um, but this is something that has been, uh, you know, definitely, definitely making some waves and doing some crazy things. Not really in the best shape, but I'm not the kind of person to answer that. But the guy that we got here is. Um, I would like to introduce and welcome Ben Blumenthal, who is the principal broker of Noah and Company, a midtown New York City office space market expert specializing in office relocations, lease renewals, restructuring, flex space options, etc. So Ben, first off, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, Ben, we're going to go right into it. Please just give us um, uh, right off the bat, generally speaking, what is happening in the New York City office sector market? So it's interesting. I mean, if you read the newspapers, the narrative is very clear. If you uh, mm. kind of make any assumptions about what's going on in office space, I think a lot of people have a, you know, a negative connotation about what's happening in Midtown. But if you come into Midtown and you walk in the streets, um, some parts of Fifth Avenue, you know, the, the sidewalks can be saturated at any given time. So there's there's that vitality that's, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, always going to be coupled with Manhattan of just tourist action. Um, so much is going on on the streets. Um, what's happening in the office market is a little bit more complex. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, varied factors kind of impacting um, what we're seeing in the office market. Um, and, uh, you know, we can look at each of the data points independently. But, you know, as everyone knows, in, in real estate, you know, the numbers don't lie. It's just, you know, whatever the agenda, the person that's cooking them together has to try to communicate. So I think there's a lot of different data sets in Midtown right now of things happening. Um, each one of them need to be distilled on their own. Um, which kind of all gets bundled together in these, uh, you know, general kind of um, mass appeal uh, types of articles. But uh, we could talk a little bit about utilization. We could talk a little bit about uh, vacancy. We could talk a little bit about um, kind of how space is evolving. Uh, and we can talk about who's active in today's market and what we're seeing um, kind of from the demand standpoint. And then also, I think what's uh, equally important now is to understand what's happening in the capital markets, which is having uh, a real impact uh, on the market and not so much kind of the work from home talk, but uh, right now the story is really more about the capital markets and um, what the position of a lot of the ownership looks like throughout Midtown, which I think is really the the the, the, the driving the the narrative here in uh, in Midtown. Right. Well, I mean that's that's quite a bit. So let's let's dig into some of that, Ben. And let's. I guess we can. I guess the number one place I would want to start with is the vacancy rate. And I think you know there's an article out in Curve recently. You know, New Glut City, which is getting a lot of press. Uh, talking about how Cushman Wakefield sees the vacancy rate around 22% or so in the city. And I'm wondering, you know, could you talk about the vacancy rate and some trends there? And then sort of how does that relate to seeing so many people in on those midtown streets that you mentioned? Yeah, so I actually I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew about the article. Um, I think he did a fantastic job about capturing what's out there. Um, and I think if you really drill down, there there are you know some really valid points that that he drew out in that article. But uh, high level, you look at the midtown vacancy rate right now, which means space that is vacant, and that's about twenty percent. Uh, it's kind of on par with the national average. And um, I'm not an economist, but I know enough about economics to know that when you know supply kind of goes up and demand stays flat or decreases a little bit, that pricing comes down. And that's kind of where we're caught right now is that pricing can't come down for a lot of these properties, um, mainly due to ownership's capitalizations. So people just, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to lease at the market today. So the simple answer to the Midtown stock and the vacancy problem is that pricing has to come down. And what we are seeing, which is usually the lead into that, 
is that the spread between face rents and net effective rents um, is widening. So people in mm -hmm. residential may be familiar with this. You know, you get a month free, net effectively you're paying less. Uh, in commercial real estate, it's kind of like that on steroids between the amount of months free that people get, the size of the obligations, the uh, TI packages, how much the landlords are spending to build out the space, et cetera. Um, so we're seeing a large spread. Um, that's usually like the, the beginning or the short-term impact. Um, but over time, once those spreads stay wide, uh, eventually rents uh, start to break. So I think eventually, once the market kind of corrects, starts to correct itself, which we're on track to do now, um, you'll have rents come down uh, on their um, on their asking rents. So that's that's really kind of the the quick answer to it um, from a capitalization standpoint. Um, what Andrew pointed to also is that there's a lot of space that that and you could call it obsolete, you could call it irrelevant, um, but it's just not competitive in today's market. So, so long as the demand stays flat and the demand doesn't increase, you'll have a lot of space that continues to pile up with no distinctive features to it or nothing unique about it that's going to appeal to the people in the market. So, um, you know, there's a couple of things going on, but that was kind of the narrative from after COVID. Once a lot of these buildings started seeing vacancy, leases not being renewed, people contracting, uh, supply started piling up. Uh, um, and now, uh, as interest rates have been going up for about 16 months now, or 15 to 16 months, um, now you're starting to see the uh, the squeeze for landlords on the demand on the demand side, and also on the uh, cash flow on the um, debt expense side, um, which is kind of creating a squeeze on margins for them. Yeah, you know what to think about that lag effect of these interest rates. It takes a year and a half or so to 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 really funnel through the economic system, and and just to think that where we are right now, the 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 rates which have been kind of at the high, high point and hanging out there. We may even hike a little bit more um, before pausing. Um, we have not felt this. This is going to be felt a year from now. We're feeling um, a year prior. Ben, before I go to my next question, could you give me an example of what um, a typical free rent concession or build out um, concession might look like um, in today's market? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you about a, a deal that we just did. Um, it was actually a renewal deal. Um, so renewal deals sometimes can be a little bit tighter. They could be a little bit more than a fair market deal. Um, we just closed up a renewal deal yesterday afternoon. Um, it was an eight-year renewal. Um, the tenant is going to be paying on the face rent about $75 a foot. Um, and they got a, a work allowance uh, equivalent to about um, a year plus. Um, mm -hmm. So the landlord will give them an allowance. Um, and also uh, about eight months free too. So um, cumulatively, you're talking about like 22 months um, with it all uh, together, well, so uh, it, it, it seems like it's 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 quite an opportunity if you're willing to to go in there from a demand uh, side. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, a lot of people. You know, when I got into the business, someone said to I said, you know, I was trying to pick. You know, do I go into leasing? Do I go into sales? And what should I do? And they said that unless someone's closing up the lights, you know, they need space. So um, people that are still in space, that are still going to the office, still need space. Their space needs might be a little bit varied. They may not be growing at the same clip that they were maybe pre-COVID, but people still need space. And, um, you know, with tenancy, which is actually good for our business, drives a lot of the momentum and the demand for brokers, really, is that, you know, if you pick up the Wall Street Journal every week or the Financial Times or the New York Times or, you know, Andrew's article in Curb, then you see that there's all this carnage out there. Um, tenants are very excited at the opportunity to uh, really take advantage of it, restructure their leases and lock in uh, rates today. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and I think it's going to be here for a little bit. Um, all right, let's go into the mind of the tenant um, and and how that may affect strategy from um, the landlord um, or the office owner. How how has this remote working changed the office attributes landscape? I mean, I want to know more about the inside of the office um, rather than the supply demand of the market. I mean, how is the office market evolving? 
Right. So kind of like what I alluded to earlier, I think it's very hard to paint the market in broad strokes. Um, you know, the market in residential for a one bedroom apartment is very different than the, uh, you know, the apartments on billionaires row. So I think there's, let's just break it into two pieces of the market. There's the small to medium sized businesses. Let's just call them. They're around, you know, 20 to 40 people. And then there's the you know, 100 plus enterprise level uh, customers. So the small boutique businesses more interested in a good rate. Um, they're less caught up kind of on employee sensitivities. You know, it's more like get into line or, you know, get out. They have a little bit more uh, flexibility with uh, getting employees to bend to their will. Um, or the, you know, principal really just says like, look, I want an office um, and that's what we're going to do. And whether, you know, 10 or 15 people are not there on any given uh, Monday or Friday is not going to really kind of, you know, force us to reinvent our whole office strategy. The office is not that significant of an expense for them to kind of reinvent uh, the wheel and the way they work. Um, that's on one side. On the other side, you have the larger companies who have a lot more sensitivities to balance um, and who really have a and they're much more competitive for talent as well many times, you know, so they'll have you know, Facebook competing with Google or one big law firm competing with another law firm. Um, so it's harder for them to, to really be um, uh, a little bit more aggressive, let's just say, with with the agenda that they want to get across. So they really do have to curate environments and create experiences for their employees that make it uh, uh, that make it compelling for them to come in. So they're looking at properties that, you know, have these amenity centers that have um, that are well located, that have a good feel, that are just an enjoyable place to be because they really need to appeal to employees that are coming in. And uh, what we're seeing is that most class A buildings that are stuck trying to reinvent themselves, facing big vacancies from big departures or contractions from tenants, really, uh, you know, in many centers like a sin quo non. Um, and this is a big expense for landlords, you know, to give up a floor of 20,000 feet um, where you'd ordinarily be getting uh, 80, 90, maybe over $100 a foot uh, for an amenities center is a significant expense in and of itself. Um, and then operating it and making sure it's available, you know, for the times that that tenants want it um, is a significant expense as well. So it's really another challenge that landlords are facing on their P&L of each individual building or something else they need to do in order to stay competitive. Um, what we have seen also is like a lot of these, um, you know, uh, portfolio operators, let's just call them Tishman Spire or SL Green or, you know, the Paramount Group, which is a REIT as well, is they're trying to create these like centralized campuses in a way. Um, they'll have a bunch of buildings in a cluster of an area and make a really expansive amenity center, maybe in one of the buildings with a bunch of different amenities for conferencing, for um, you know events, um, and obviously employees to go get away and take a break for a little bit. Um, Tishman's Buyer's done a really great job in Rockefeller Center doing that. Um, so we're seeing a lot more of those uh, kind of outside spaces from the office so that the landlords can sell this to the companies and say, you know, a law firm that was uh, 200,000 feet previously may have had a whole floor dedicated to a cafeteria and a conference room and that sort of space. Uh, and a lot of these landlords are trying to centralize that so that um, you know they can allow some of these companies to be a little bit more efficient. So um, that's something notable that we're uh, we're seeing in the market. One other point I'd point out is that you know when space gets expensive, let's just say from 2012 to 2016, when you had an acceleration and and an increase in rents, you saw companies get a lot more dense. There's a lot more. They were a lot more aggressive with their um, with their footprints, with their layouts, trying to pack more people into less spe less space to try to um, you know kind of offset the increased cost of space. And you know what you see in the cycles now is you see people kind of breathing a little bit more and spreading out a little bit more. And that's usually goes along with the cycles, those space designs. So you don't see people as um, aggressive and packing people in with you know the four foot uh, bench space. Um, now you see things a little bit more spread out, a little bit more private offices. And that's kind of what we're seeing in designs as well.
Well, that's interesting because you know you think you think people have been working in offices for hundreds of years, and yet that the office design has been constantly changing. And you look back to what the '80s looked like or what the '70s looked like; it's a completely different look, completely different feel. Aside from the colors and the furniture, it's just it's a different way of working. And I suppose New York City will eventually evolve, and, and landlords will eventually evolve to that. But that kind of touches something in the article, which is called New, New Glut City, and I, I highly suggest if you guys haven't read it. Uh, to go out and find it. It's, it really sh- shines some light on what's happening out there today. But in the article, Scott Reckler, who's the, the founder and, and chief of RxR, has this divide between what he's considering the, the quote-unquote digital buildings and the so-called film buildings. That's that's an, He's alluding to Kodak, which is you know focused on the digital, the new, and not necessarily focused on the film, the old. And I guess, I guess, Ben, what I'd ask you is, you know, a lot of that has to do with, as you, as you mentioned, these new amenity sets, the, the sort of the new plans. But if you're looking at both of these sets of buildings, right? Whether it has the whether it has the amenities or the old ones, it, it all comes down to the cap rate and what that landlord is looking at in terms of the cap rate and what they're getting. And you know, part of part of the the mystery out there right now is the denominator on that cap rate is is very murky. And it, that that denominator is basically what the building is worth. And there's a lot of you know unknowns uh, in and around that whole question. So I guess the question I would have to you is that. Is there a point at which cap rates for the landlords stop mattering? Do they shift to something else? And if so, what might that be? I think any investment is a combination of cap rate, obviously, um, you know, risk, um, timeline. Uh, right now, I don't think a lot of these buildings that, you know, you'd call, uh, you know, irrelevant or obsolete are, are trading cheap enough to justify converting them to any other use. I don't think we have a, a stabilized idea yet of what market cap rates are. Um, we're starting to get clarity on what rents are. That's uh, that's been something that's that's becoming clearer as to what a building is worth and what the rents are worth. Um, and if you take that at a you know a, a normal market cap rate with a little bit of a, a juice on it, it's still the buildings still aren't trading enough per foot to uh, to wash them through the system. So I think it's going to take a few years, both in terms of cap rate discovery uh, for the market to get comfortable with what the cap rates are, for the market to become realistic with what the rents are, and um, it's got to. F- flush through the whole capital stack, you know, lenders got to get comfortable with it. And this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Nobody's jumping to take a, a significant haircut. I mean, you could be talking about tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars uh, collectively. So um, people aren't jumping at that opportunity. And it really takes time until there's enough urgency from all the stakeholders to to get real and understand um, what it is, you know, Scott's come out way ahead of this. Um, but unfortunately, you know, people are not, uh, they're not eager to jump on board until they really need to. I mean, this this is this is just fantastic stuff, Ben. You're making our jobs real easy here. I got to tell you, um, you know, I I, <laughs> I I wonder about these landlords. I mean, are there are there a lot of prints? Before I ask this question, are there a lot of prints for for office trades, um, sales, or is it like just a very illiquid market? Um, you know, there are trades. There are things happening out there. Um, you know, of course, every owner who's uh, who's trying to command a certain price has got a story of why why the building down the block sold for fifty percent of what you know he thinks his building's worth. Um, a yeah. lot of trades are happening behind the scenes. A lot of debt is starting to trade quietly. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a what I figured. The, a lot of the CMBS debt. Uh, you have bondholders, and bondholders are usually looking for cash flow and certainty of that cash flow. A lot of these bondholders now are getting increasingly bearish on the uh, future of those cash flows, so they're trying to trade out of these bonds often at a discount um, to people with more of a real estate background and the people with a real estate background, they're also trying to figure out, you know, what's this building worth if I have to, if I have to take it back. So trades are happening. Um, 
And it's just a question of urgency. You know, for a lot of these owners, it's it's uh, it, it, a trade would represent a significant write down. And until their nose is against the wall, they're going to resist um, you know, taking that write down. The trades and the repossessions and the foreclosures that we're seeing are, are actually kind of like from the beginning. Um, they're things that were triggered like at the outset, if not a little bit before COVID. So we're about three and a half years out from that. So, you know, there's about a three and change year lag from when distress sets in until stuff ultimately trades. So if we stay at status quo in the market, um, you know, you'll start to see more activity, you know, within the next uh, 24 to 36 months of the people whose distress started to set in. And then you also have, yeah. you know, people whose leases didn't necessarily expire in their buildings and leases didn't start to roll, you know, until a year or two after COVID. So, um, you know, with the, dis the difference now that we have than we had in, in 2009, 2010 is that interest rates came down. So that was a big release valve for a lot of the pressure that owners were facing. Now we have interest rates going in the opposite direction and they're going up, which is like a, a pressure cooker for a lot of these landlords who are getting hit on all angles. So um, if interest yeah. rates stay flat, you know, we'll have, you know, a slower onset of pain. If they continue to increase, um, it'll really just accelerate a lot of the, um, you know, let's just call it repricing that's going to happen in the market. Yeah. And that's what I'm wondering. I mean, it seems yeah. like this commercial sector is like the the worst kept secret. Um, it's like a, it's like a slow moving train. We're just all watching and waiting for something to happen. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's quiet. Maybe all these things. Maybe the Fed puts out a whole bunch of facilities and this becomes a non-event and, and whatever happens is just a minor little wave. Um, but, you know, I'm just wondering how much dry powder these landlords have to absorb vacancies before that tide goes out. I mean, do you have any, any insight into that? Yeah, well, look, you know, a lot. it really depends on the landlord. Um, it depends what their building looks like, you know, what their relationship is like with their landlords, uh, with their uh, lenders, how much flexibility they're going to get, um, how relevant their building is and competitive is in the market. Um, e each building is its own story, you know, and um, I think you got to take it on a building by building basis. Um, you know, you've seen some significant write downs uh, in value from, from the public REITs. Uh, I've um, you know, spoken with a bunch of landlords who have done cash in refinances, who have gotten extensions on their loans. So, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to kick the can down the road. Um, and yeah. the landlords that can do that are doing that. And ultimately becomes back to basis, you know, how, how aggressive were they with their debt? Um, how much did they leverage and, and how much of a shock can they absorb, um, you know, to keep going? So there's a lot of talk about dry powder, but uh, I don't think there's that much dry powder out there for office right now. A lot of office just can't trade um, because you can't find debt. And it's very expensive to get equity um, for uh, for office today. Well, right, and you know part of that part of that slow moving train wreck is the is the refinancing of that debt, which you know there's some numbers that have been thrown about, like it's it's over a trillion dollars, and of course it's it doesn't all happen at once, but it happens you know bit by bit. And I guess the you know the question is just to kind of start wrapping this up. I, I'd love to hear how you view sort of the future of of, of office space in the city, and and I, I'd also like your thoughts on on the residential and how how these worlds. Uh, will mix going forward. So look, I have an instinctive belief and and I'm I'm always bullish on New York City. Uh, I think that, you know, people much much smarter and who've been around much longer than me have seen cycles, ups and downs. And you know, New York City has seen a lot of challenging times, but I don't think any other place comes close to being as competitive as New York City is. I mean, we've got I, I've said this since the beginning of COVID, um, when everyone was home and sitting home, is that we've got too many anchors here for New York City and we've got such a high um, moat um, against any other city, we've got universities, finance, tech, uh, entertainment, tourism, um, you name it. I mean, there's just so many anchors anchoring the demand and vitality of New York City. Right now, I think we're, you know, we're still trying to get a little bit more equilibrium and stability after the work from home phase. Um, I think that's pretty much over. 
Um, but we're in a down cycle now, you know, and things are complicated and challenging. And it'll take about, uh, I don't know how long, but it'll take some time until things flush out. But, uh, you know, as people have always said, you know, the, uh, Bill, Bill Rudin says, you know, the obituary of New York City has been written many times. And I think it'll come back stronger, um, you know, once we have able to get, get through this. Yeah, I mean, New York City's always been a buy, buy the dip kind of a market, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and I tend right. to agree. And I, you know, I think Ben, you said it earlier. Not, you know, I, I think you said it earlier. I mean, the streets of Midtown are are packed, and there it's it's a mix of not only people who are working, but it's a mix of tourists. I mean, the city it's, itself, the the life of the city is is really bouncing back strong, and I'm I'm wondering when that's going to translate into people coming back to work and, and office space. And I guess it's a it's an open question, but it is one that will have an answer. It sounds like. Yeah, look, I have the I have the privilege of walking on the streets of New York City, you know, for for most of my days. And you speak to anybody who's immigrated here, you know, from anywhere else around the world. They could they could be driving a cab, they could be you know at a hot dog stand, or they could be running a, a private equity business. And um, you know, people just uh, you know those people who can really appreciate New York City. It's us who grew up here who uh, sometimes get jaded as to what a unique place this is, and uh, you know what the energy is like here. So. Um, yeah, I long-term believer in New York City, and uh, the entrepreneurial energy is just—it's infectious and something I, uh, you know, I'm inspired by every day. So it really helps me, uh, you know, see the future in New York City. I love it. I awesome. love it. Go New York City, um, Ben Blumenthal. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a wealth of information. I hope you agents out there have have learned something from Ben. Um, you know, give him an email, guys. Give him an email. Say thank you. You can find him on the web right there. If you have any questions for Ben or any any business potentially, he he's your guy. So you contact him, principal broker at Noah and Company, Midtown New York City office space market brokerage firm. Thank you, Ben Blumenthal. Thank you so much. Thank you, John Walkup. I am Noah Rosenblatt. This has been Talking Manhattan, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, guys.